Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, what's going on? Well, I'm having a very good morning today, and I'm excited to get started on asking you some important questions, Eric. Are you starting out with a good day yourself? So far, so good. These questions kind of, I'm a little nervous. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> let me ask you me? this. Have you ever looked at a spot or mole in your skin and wondered, should I be concerned? <laughs> Barbara, the older I get, the more I seem to do that. <laughs> so yes, I have a couple that I'm like, oh, I should probably talk to somebody about this. Yeah, we get spotty as we age, don't we? Yeah, a little bit. Well, were you aware that about 20% of us will develop skin cancer by age 70 and that every hour, more than two people die of skin cancer in the US? Did you hear that before? Oh, no, that last one was terrible. Every I know, hour, it is people? terrible. You know that this hits home for me as I lost my sister-in-law to melanoma. And that's the skin cancer that is responsible for 75% of all skin cancer deaths. Mm. Although with early detection, the five-year survival rate for melanoma is 99%. And interestingly, most melanomas and about 90% of non-melanoma skin cancers are tied to sun exposure. So Eric, ever mm. been in the sun? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, when I was growing up, tanning was the rage and not recognized as skin damage. And the suntan lotion we used back in the 60s and 70s had an SPF up or a sun protection factor of two. And oh, by wow. the 80s, did you know that? It, no. It's only two to six in the 80s. It wasn't until the end of the century we got to those nice 30 pluses. So, and this is concerning when you find out that having five or more sunburns doubles your risk for melanoma. So mm. my age category, we've got to really be aware. And here's my last disturbing fact, and I won't bug you about this anymore, but 9,500 people are diagnosed with skin cancer daily. And there are more people diagnosed with skin cancer each year in the US than all other cancers combined. Surprise. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, Eric, this is why we have Dr. Jason Rizzo, a Mohs surgeon and dermatologist to educate us today on how to recognize, prevent, and treat skin cancers. So listen in on our conversation and we'll see what you might still want to learn when you join us later. All right. Sounds good, Barbara. Okay. See you soon. I'm pleased to introduce you to Dr. Jason M. Rizzo, MD, a board-certified dermatologist and skin cancer surgeon with special expertise in Mohs micrographic surgery and tissue-sparing melanoma surgeries. Dr. Rizzo is a native of Buffalo, New York. He attended Syracuse University for his BS in biochemistry and SUNY Buffalo School of Medicine, earning both an MD in medicine 
and a PhD in biochemistry. He completed his dermatology residency in micrographic surgery, or MOS, dermatologic oncology training at the University of Michigan. Dr. Rizzo is trained in the fields of general, cosmetic, and surgical dermatology. He is skilled in the diagnosis and treatment of all skin cancers, including melanoma, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and other rare cancers. He has performed thousands of Mohs and melanoma surgery cases, including a wide breadth of complex surgical reconstructions. Jason is a member of the American Academy of Dermatology, American College of Mohs Surgery, and the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery. He practices in Southwest Florida with the Woodruff Institute. Welcome, Jason. How are you today? Doing great, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you join us. And so can I assume that baby number two has not joined us yet today? No, we're still uh, in a holding pattern on that, but my wife is due any day now. <laughs> okay, my fingers crossed. So why did you choose to become a dermatologist and then to become a Mohs surgeon? That's a great question, Barbara. I think uh, in a word, uh, diversity is what drew me to dermatology. It's a very multidisciplinary field. Skin is the largest organ system in the body. Uh, it communicates with the world, and almost every discipline in medicine um, has skin-related findings, whether it's immunology, infectious disease, cancer oncology, um, autoimmunity, allergy. There's lots of disciplines that interface with dermatology. So that was what first attracted to me. And also, one of the things that's very interesting about dermatology is there's a mix of medicine surgery, and as you mentioned, even some cosmetic aspects. So there's, you know, a lot to keep you busy and, and keep things new and different. Oh, it sounds like you never get bored. Absolutely not. Every day is different. <laughs> every case is different. Even something as simple as a surgical wound, every patient's different. So the same surgery is never the same. Wow. So is this a good time for us to give a disclaimer that we're not giving medical advice today? Yes, Barbara. I think that's a great time to start with a disclaimer. So this, you know, Nothing replaces a face-to-face -face consultation with your physician. We're talking from a medical education standpoint to raise awareness to patients. But if you have any need for medical advice, you should seek a consultation with your physician. Uh, I recommend seeing a board-certified dermatologist. You can go to the American Academy of Dermatology's website and look up the closest board-certified dermatologist in your area. Well, thank you. I did put that on the podcast notes so people can look right there for that connection. And so Jason, skin cancer can be scary. What are some of the symptoms that should cause us concern and how would we I, even identify a potential problem? It's a great question. We like to talk about the ABCs of skin cancer detection, ABCDEs, okay. if you will. A is for asymmetry and shape. B is for border that is irregular. C is for color that's different or changing. D is for diameter, that's getting larger or growing. And E is evolving, if it's changing. If I could encapsulate all in one word, I would say different. It looks different in terms of how it's sized or shaped or colored or changing and growing. You'll get all kinds of fun spots as you age, but chances are if you get a spot, then it looks like all your other spots and it's not changing. It's not itchy, painful, bleeding, burning. That's probably okay. You know, we get pimples, we get sun freckles and things like that. But if you get one that's looking a lot darker or different or not healing or not going away, then you want to get that looked at. So, and it's always safest to have an expert look at it with, you know, their skill expertise and they have special instruments to analyze these lesions. That's what I would recommend. 
Well, thank you. Now I've heard that a skin cancer can also be white or show as a depression or a large pore. Is that true? That's true. You know, the skin can only look so many sizes, shapes, and colors. So nothing's completely specific for a skin cancer. That's why I like the word different. So depending on the nature of the skin cancer, sometimes it can make pigment and be brown or black, but sometimes it doesn't. It can be red or white or depressed. So the key is that it looks different than all the other spots. Like a, a very common presenting sign for skin cancer is a wound that doesn't heal. Someone will say, oh, I thought it was a bruise or a pimple, but it just never went away. Well, a bruise heals in a few weeks or a pimple goes away in a few days. If something's there for weeks or months and it's growing and it's bleeding and not healing, that's a very telltale sign. Oh, that's a good tip. Okay. So slow healing or non-healing wounds. So what are the different types of skin cancer and how are they identified? Well, there's numerous skin cancers. The most common skin cancers and the most common cancer in the world is non-melanoma skin cancer. Basal cell carcinoma is the number one cancer in the world. Uh, Skin-based squamous cell carcinoma is the number two most common cancer in the world. Uh, they tend to present at the surface. Um, they're kind of, they tend to be pink or rough or scaly lesions. Um, they can bleed very easily. They can be very shiny or pink. Those are the most common. What can be a little more aggressive and thankfully less common is melanoma skin cancer, which is tends to be a pigmented lesion brown or black or dark in color, but it can also present without that pigment. So those are the overall most common skin cancers. There are other rare cancers. Any cell in the skin, just like any cell in your body, has the potential to become cancer. Thankfully, our body has defense mechanisms to stop that from happening and prevent that. But you know, there's all kinds of rarer skin cancers that are probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But the, from our general viewership, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and melanoma, those are things that are going to be very common in the population that we should really raise awareness of. And as far as treatment for those more common ones... <laughs> What should we be aware of? Maybe take us through the diagnosis to treatment. What what would someone expect? Yeah, that's a great question, Barbara. So if you're concerned about a skin lesion because of how it's looking, feeling, or acting, you should get it looked at. You can start with your primary care doctor and ask them if you should see a dermatologist, or you could reach out directly to a dermatologist. Again, I mentioned the American Academy of Dermatology's website. You can find a board-certified dermatologist in your area. Usually what you'll have is a consultation. They'll look at the skin lesion. There's special tools called dermatoscopes that could look at a skin lesion under magnification and polarized light and determine if it's an at-risk lesion. If we're concerned about a skin cancer, the next step is usually a biopsy. That's where we would anesthetize the area, numb it with some lidocaine or novocaine, similar to at the dentist when you get a cavity. And then we can take a piece of it, remove a piece of the tissue and send it to a pathology lab to process and look under the microscope to see if there is a cancer there. So that's the diagnosis part. That could be done in the office. It's an outpatient procedure. Usually just leave with a little Band-Aid. That takes you know several days to several weeks to get a result. But if it does come back as a skin cancer, then that would determine the next step, which would be treatment. The treatment depends on the nature of the cancer. If it's a non-melanoma skin cancer, basal cell or squamous cell carcinoma, Usually the treatment is surgery. We like to do what's called Mohs surgery, which is a special tissue sparing surgery where we can remove all the cancer roots and as little normal skin as possible to keep it small and have a very high cure rate, about 99% cure rate. And this is helpful because the majority of these skin cancers are on the head and neck. 
where you know you want to keep things small and minimize scarring. But it really depends on the type of skin cancer, Barbara, because there's a lot of variety. Some cancers are small and shallow. Uh, sometimes if they're very low risk and they're very small and shallow, you could actually treat some with a cream or a gentle scraping and burning. Um, so it's a case-by-case -case basis. Most surgery is a tool to treat skin cancers, but there's other tools, creams and curetting and things like that. Well, full disclosure here, I'm married to a very, very fair gentleman and poor Steve has had five Mohs surgeries and today is, well, what is, he started two days ago, his chemo cream on his face. So it's not pretty, but I know it's effective. So we're happy to have that as an option. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I always like to say, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, you know, <laughs> the nice thing about dermatology is there's lots of treatment options. So, you know, yes, Mohs surgery is a great treatment for specific types of skin cancers in specific locations. So if it's, you know, a basal cell or a squamous cell carcinoma on the head and neck, that's usually something we consider because we want to keep it small and minimize scarring. If it's really large or really aggressive and something we worry about getting clean margins on, most surgery is a nice tool for that. But it's not the end-all be-all. There's other treatments. Sometimes you don't really want to spare tissue. You need to take a very generous safety margin if you're dealing with a aggressive cancer, like a advanced melanoma or something like that. Oh, great. Well, we're told to go have an annual physical, go to the dentist twice a year. So what does it mean to have a full body skin check and how often should we do that? Well, down here, I definitely recommend everyone gets a, a full body skin check. There's a lot of uh, sun exposure and, and it's cumulative over a lifetime. So I recommend once a year getting a full body skin check with a board certified dermatologist. And really what that is, is looking you over head to toe it includes your scalp, your palms, your soles, and if you're comfortable, even in the groin region, because not all um, skin cancer is sun related. And really, if you don't look, you can't find things. And unfortunately, you, the rarer skin cancers on the soles and palms or in the groin area, they tend to be caught later and do worse, but they're not necessarily more aggressive. So early detection is the key. You really should look head to toe. So you want someone who's thorough and trained in that kind of analysis. If you have a history, a personal history or a family history of skin cancer, we often recommend more frequent screenings, you know, every six months or more frequent than that, depending on the type of cancer and the type of history. How important is early detection? Are there any new techniques or technologies that are promising for early detection or is a skin check enough? So early detection is paramount. Obviously, the earlier you catch something, the lower risk it is, the better the outcomes. So, you know, most skin cancer starts in the skin and over time can become more aggressive and accumulate increased risk of spreading other places. And that can cause an increased risk of complications or even death sometimes. So catching it early is huge. It also can reduce the morbidity. If you catch it when it's small, you're going to have a smaller scar, less disfigurement and things like that. As far as techniques, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have an instrument called a dermatoscope, which uses magnification and different uh, polarizations of light, which lets us see deeper structures in the skin. That's been around for several years, but the way we are able to analyze those images now is getting very more refined. There's lots of groups working on artificial intelligence and computer analysis of images that we can take, and that can help interpret some of those things. So that's a field that there's very active research in. So, you know, you want to get a good image with multiple views and good lighting and possibly polarized light. But the ability to analyze those images in a high throughput fashion digitally with AI and other types of technologies is, is something that's that's rapidly evolving. And, you know, with smartphones and attachments, that's something that in the near future may be more accessible to the public. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Boy, any help we can get would be great. So Absolutely. now I've personally heard this term too many times, actinic keratosis. It makes me nervous as I hear it can be precancerous, but should we be concerned when we hear that? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the standpoint, it is a precancer, but it's a very low-risk precancer. Actinic keratosis, about 1% of them per year turn into a squamous cell carcinoma. So it's, it's I like low risk. statistics. So thank yeah. you for that. that it's that low helps. risk. You know, you certainly, they kind of feel like dry, gritty, dry patches of skin that just don't go away with moisturizing. Certainly if they're growing, bleeding, getting thicker, that could suggest it's transforming into a skin cancer and you want to prioritize that. What's low risk from that standpoint, but yes, it should be worried about because it's a marker of sun damage. If you have actinic keratosis, it means you have enough sun damage to start making precancers and that you're on the path that you could get skin cancer. So you want to be watched closer. And uh, I always say an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. So treating your precancers is going to prevent you from getting skin cancers down the road. So the analogy that I give people is that sun damage is like fertilizer in a garden that grows skin cancer. Actinic keratoses or precancers are like weeds in the garden. You want to get on top of your weeds so they don't overrun your garden. But what we're really worried about is that invasive species of weeds that can kind of grow up and, and destroy the yard. And uh, that's what a skin cancer is. So we can treat the precancers a number of ways. Sometimes when there's a few of them and they're easy to see and feel, we can freeze them. That's like going out back and picking out the weeds in your garden. But the reality is, you know, even if you pull it out and you get all the roots, or oftentimes you don't, you're going to keep getting weeds in that garden because you have good soil. Sometimes if there's lots and lots of weeds, it's easier just to kind of treat the whole lawn, like with a weed killer or that chemo cream that you're talking yes. about. So that that helps. You're going to get fewer weeds. But even if you live in a, a good soil area, even if you treat your lawn with weed killer, you can still get a few weeds, just far fewer. So it's, it's all about risk reduction. So going back to your question, you know, should we worry about them? Yes and no. Yes, it's a marker of sun damage. It's a marker of increased skin cancer risk. Yes, we should watch it and treat them. But no, it's not going to be life-threatening imminently as long as you take care of your skin and you do the right things. But one, one misconception I see is people think, well, I treat these AKs and they just keep coming back. It's not working. Well, yeah, it is working, but you have to stay on top of it. It's maintenance therapy. Oh, I appreciate that perspective. Makes me feel a little better and every time I go in to get that taken care of. So does skin cancer affect people of color differently? And what are the challenges in diagnosis and treatment? Yeah, that's a great question, Barbara. It does. And it's important to remember that there's differences in different demographics as well as how people present. Certainly when skin is has more pigment naturally, it, it may be harder to notice pigmented lesions because they're more subtle or when they're inflamed and things like that. You need someone who has experience dealing with skin of color. And that's part of our training as board certified dermatologists. The natural pigment in some skin tones, it, it serves as protection against the damage from the ultraviolet radiation in the sun. So they do have a little lower risk of sun-related skin cancers, but they also tend to Skin of color patients tend to get skin cancers in, in areas where there's less pigment on the soles and mm. palms and other areas and non-sun-related skin cancers. So some of that's due to genetic differences in their skin type. And, you know, oftentimes, as I mentioned before, these are areas that are neglected, not looked at as regularly and get caught later. So they do worse, not because they're more aggressive cancers, but because they're caught later. So that's a big, important point that you really need to remember to have a full body skin check and look everywhere. Well, you mentioned it's not always sun earlier. Sun, besides sun damage, what else can cause skin cancer? 
Well, that's a great question, Barbara. The, the sun is the number one, two, and three cause of skin cancers that are sun-related, but there are other causes of skin cancers that are not sun-related. The skin, as I mentioned before, is the largest organ, and it's in constant communication with the environment. So other carcinogens or cancer-causing exposures in the environment can cause skin cancer. Oftentimes, these are occupational exposures to chemicals uh, like polyvinyls and chlorides, um, arsenic, coal tar. Back in the day, lots of chimney sweeps used to get lots of skin cancers because of their exposures um, to coal tar and thing, and arsenic and things like that. Oh. Um, there are other infectious exposures. There's been links to the HPV virus and uh, squamous cell carcinoma in the anal genital area. And that can play a causal role for those non-sun related skin cancers, which can be related to exposures to the HPV virus. Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to Hightower's Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast, but if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. Does genetics have any, I'm going to ask that again. So who are most at risk and can genetics play a role in skin cancer? Well, in terms of being most at risk, the if you work in an occupation with exposure to carcinogens that are known to cause skin cancer, that's going to increase your risk. In terms of genetics, I'm from the mindset that you know everything has a genetic component, just a matter of the way I think of it is genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Some mm. people are born with a high genetic load and they don't need that much environmental exposure. Some people don't have that genetic load of risk, but they have the right environment. So you need a little bit of both. So as far as your genetic susceptibility, if you're very fair skinned like myself and your husband, and by the way, you look very fair skinned yourself as well. So <laughs> he must be very pale. Uh, obviously <laughs> you have, you have a lot of less pigment at baseline, so you're less protected. So you're more prone to that sun damage when you get it. So skin type is probably the number one genetic risk. If you're fairer skin, there's a higher risk of sun-related skin cancers. But family history is also important too. If you have a, a history of melanoma or even non-melanoma skin cancer in your family, it's in multiple relatives. If it's happening at early ages of diagnosis, that suggests there's other factors in your genetics that may put you at risk for skin cancer. So if there's an immediate family history that could, you know, suggest beyond your skin type, there may be other genetic factors that are contributing to your cancer risk. Well, I have a question. The American Academy of Dermatology, were they instrumental in having 44 states in the District of Columbia either ban or regulate indoor tanning by minors? Now, but I will say this, that's for minors. So does that mean us more mature adults should know better? I'm thinking tanning beds are a no-no. Yeah, absolutely. The AAD and dermatologists have been uh, lobbying for this for a very long time. And we talked earlier about sun damage being the number one, two, and three cause of skin cancer. So it's the ultraviolet radiation from the sun that damages the DNA in your skin cells and causes cancer. And we know it's cumulative. It adds up over time. So the more sun, the more risk. When you go into a tanning booth, you're essentially exposing yourself to unadulterated ultraviolet radiation. So we have a thing called the ozone and other reflective factors that give us some protection in addition to our clothing and sunscreen. But when you're in a tanning booth, you're really 
accelerating your photo damage and your DNA damage. So it's a, it's a very well-established cause of skin cancer. So whether you're young or old, it's, it's really a big no-no. And I know everyone loves to see that beautiful tan on their skin, but in reality, a tan of your skin is a sign of damage. Your skin has responds to damage to the DNA from the radiation by making more pigment. And what that pigment does is it creates an umbrella over the DNA in your cells and your skin to protect it from further damage. So while it may look aesthetically pleasing, it's a marker of damage, just like those AKs we discussed earlier. So I would recommend a spray on tan or, you know, just going pale and beautiful like, 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 like your husband. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be a, a better look. And also, you know, a lot of people who like to go tanning tend to do it because of the cosmetic benefits of that. And I just want to let everyone know that in the short term, that may look good, but in the long run, the photo damage not only causes skin cancer, but it accelerates aging. So yeah. you're well, actually let's working avoid against wrinkles. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Wrinkles, That's going to be the number one cause of wrinkles is photo damage. Wow. So other lifestyle choices you can suggest when's, I mean, we want to get outside and get some sun, right? For vitamin D, when are the best times to get out there, to be outside, to walk, to hike, to bike, all the things we love to do outside, tennis, yeah, Absolutely. You don't have to be (laughs) afraid of the sun. You just have to be safe in how you expose yourself to the sun. So if you're in the sun, you Mm -hmm. should either wear ultraviolet protective clothing, which is like wearing sunscreen, or wear sunscreen. I always say SPF at least 30, the higher the better. And you have to reapply. A lot of people think they put it on once and they're good for the day. And that's not true. It only lasts about two to three hours. So you want to reapply every two to three hours. More frequently if you're in water because it washes off a wide brim hat. You want to make sure you're either covered with that ultraviolet protective factor clothing, or you have sunscreen in those areas and you're reapplying. You know, certainly you could practice sun avoidance. That's almost impossible down here, but the peak hours of UV index tend to be from like 10 AM to 4 PM. So you can monitor the UV index, but really you should be protected when you're out there, but you don't have to refrain or abstain from going outside and doing the things you love. You just need to be safe about it. So is there a risk to low vitamin D without sun exposure or do supplements suffice? So supplements can really suffice. So yes, sun can help with the synthesis of vitamin D in your skin, but dietary supplements easily bypass that need. So a little bit of sun is only needed to help with that vitamin D synthesis. However, if you get enough through your diet, it's more than enough to uh, supplement that because the form of vitamin D that you're consuming is actually downstream of the form that requires uh, sunlight for synthesis. I'm going to just kind of circle back here for a minute, because I was thinking about you as a Mohs surgeon, what can you do reconstructively in surgery? I'm just thinking of people and friends that I've had that have had some surgeries that look beautiful. I mean, I can't even tell. So what are the things you're cautious of or think about when you personally are doing surgery? That's a great question, Barbara. So as a Mo surgeon who's fellowship trained and board certified, part of my training is in the reconstruction of Mo surgery defects. So we are trained in plastic surgery techniques to help wounds heal in a way to minimize scarring and optimize cosmesis. So it really depends on, as I mentioned earlier, every wound, even if it's the same cancer in the same location, is different because people will have different skin types, different soft tissues around them, different structures of their face. So there's certain rules that you want to apply. You know, where you, uh, if you're able to suture something, where you put those suture lines can make a big deal. 
So there's three ways for a wound to heal. One is you can let it heal naturally. It'll fill in and heal. Another is if there's loose skin around it, you can stitch it side to side. And the third is if you don't have those two options, you have to bring skin from somewhere else. So you can either transplant skin from another part of the body, what's called a skin graft, or you can move or rotate skin nearby without transplanting. You leave it connected in what's called a skin flap. So what you want to do is use those techniques and decide which one is going to give you the best cosmetic outcome in terms of where you put the scar, what the contour of that surface is, and what kind of skin movement that patient has. So you could literally have the same surgical defect on three different patients and have to reconstruct it three different ways. And that's really where that training, that fellowship training and that board certification and Mohs surgery comes into play because I've dealt with thousands of Mohs surgery defects. So I'm a strong proponent of not only a board certified Mohs surgeon, but someone who's fellowship trained by the American College of Mohs Surgery, which means we've done over a thousand cases and 500 complex cases of reconstruction during our training, which is one to two years after dermatology residency. So uh, I would suggest you look at the American College of Mohs Surgery website to find a fellowship trained surgeon in your area. And there's also a directory on that. Well, you use the term comesis. Does that mean prettier? Cosmesis. Yeah. Cosmetic. You want the best cosmetic outcome. Prettier. Yes. More noticeable. (laughs) So part of the training, you know, is kind of as again, dermatology and Mohs surgery being very multidisciplinary. We have to understand the, the plastic surgery nature of things, where to put scars. So the body tends to heal better when tension is put in certain areas and scars hide better when they're put in certain creases. So that's why you want someone who's who does a lot of these surgeries and, and knows how to orient those repairs. Well, thank you. Are there any common myths or misconceptions about skin mm-hmm. cancer you want to address? And I do have a question too about, I've read about vaccines. Is that really science fiction at this point for skin cancers? Well, I'll start off with the vaccine one because it's fresh on the mind that you just asked it. So no, it's it's really not. So there are there's always research being going into cancer vaccines. A lot of them are adjuvant or complementary to some of the immune therapies that are out there now. So for those that don't know, immunotherapy is a field that's rapidly evolving where we're able to harness the power of our immune system, which normally attacks foreign invaders and infections, to get it to attack cancer. And uh, there's drugs on the market for uh, cancers, including melanoma, which have really changed the treatment paradigm. And we're able to generate an immune response against cancer and help your body heal itself. So a lot of the vaccine work that I'm familiar with is trying to augment that response. So there's a certain number of people that have a great response to immune therapy, and then there's a a decent number that don't. So how can we make non-responders respond? And that's what a lot of those vaccines are trying to do, try to amplify that response or get the non-responders to respond. Now, there's also people looking into preventative vaccines, um, but that's work that I'm not quite as familiar with. But it's really not science fiction. It's amazing what we're able to do. Um, And I could talk more about immunotherapy in a few moments. But drawing back to your other question about misconceptions with uh, skin cancer, I think we've touched on a few of them, but it would be good to summarize. So, you know, number one, precancerous changes, they're not the kind of thing where you treat it and it goes away forever. It, it means you're at risk and we need to stay on top of that. And sun damage is not something we can erase. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you have sun damage, it's irreversible, but we need to stay on top of it. Just kind of like if you have high blood pressure or you have gingivitis, you have chronic disease that we need to monitor very closely. It doesn't mean it's going to cause a heart attack or it's going to cause you to lose your teeth, but it could, and you need to stay on top of it. That's what chronic sun damage is. Okay. The other misconception is all skin cancer is related to the sun. It's not. We talked about that. There's 
infectious causes, there's chemical causes, there's cancers in areas that people don't normally look. And unfortunately, people do worse because no one's looking there. So you really need to look everywhere. And one of the biggest causes of morbidity and mortality is neglect. If we catch things later or you don't seek evaluation, bad things happen. So you're never going to be wrong getting it looked at early, even if it's a benign normal growth. So those are probably the two biggest misconceptions. But if there's anything else that you may have heard of, I'm happy to to weigh in. No, but it's interesting you're mentioning how it can be hidden in different areas. So behind the ear, inside the mouth, you're right on the bottom of the foot. I mean, I think we have to remind ourselves it's not always very visible. Yeah. And it's not just dermatologists who are finding these cancers. You know, obviously patients are, are very in tune with their skin. So patients find a lot of things that are different and they, they should get those things looked at. But I can't tell you how many times I've had a hairdresser notice a spot on someone's scalp or a dentist notice mm-hmm. something in someone's mouth or a podiatrist. So it's really, it takes a village. So uh, if you notice something on someone when in a polite way, you can always mention, hey, have you gotten that looked at? I, I've had an experience with this. Maybe, you know, it could be a skin cancer. Uh, you hear stories all the time in the news. I, I heard a story a couple of years ago. Someone was at a hockey game and noticed a player, you know, a player behind the bench had a spot on their neck and was a medical student who wrote a note and just on the penalty box or something and said, hey, you should get that looked at. It. And it turned out being wow. mel- melanoma. Yeah. And the player oh tracked gosh. her down. The player tracked her down and thanked her. saved her life. So, so don't think you're being rude when you call someone's attention to it as nicely as you can. I think Could it's save worth their life. A, yeah, I think it's worth a little uncomfortable moment to s- potentially save someone's life. And I think there's a tactful way to approach it. I'm biased, obviously, because I I'm always looking at skin. But uh, yeah, if you're if you're genuinely worried about it, I think you know if you see something, say something. Well, thank you. You did offer to talk a little bit about immunotherapy a little deeper. Could you go deeper there, please? Sure, happy to talk about immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, as I mentioned, is an emerging field where we're harnessing the power of our own immune system to fight off cancer. And interestingly enough, this is something that we've known about a while in dermatology because melanoma is a very immunogenic cancer, meaning it's able to generate an immune response. There have been reports decades ago and even unto the present where people have a melanoma and the body's been able to spontaneously resolve it. Sometimes there's a melanoma that spreads to other places in the body, but the actual initial skin lesion is gone because the body has mounted such a robust immune response to it. It's gone away. And that's what we call a melanoma with an unknown primary, meaning Mm -hmm. the primary tumor is gone, but the metastatic disease is still there. And those patients do better than patients with a primary and a metastasis because they have an immune response. So we know that some tumors are capable of generating immune responses. And in recent years, we've been able to harness that as a treatment. And now that is one of the relatively newer treatments for metastatic melanoma and Mm -hmm. operable melanomas and advanced melanomas, where we give the immunotherapy to have the immune system treat the tumor. And there's very good, oftentimes curable disease rates with this. But as I mentioned, there's, there's a significant number of people who don't respond. So we're working on ways to find, to amplify immune responses that exist to generate new responses. And not only in tumors that are known to have demonstrated this, but in tumors that have never shown this. So Mm -hmm. that's a very huge area of research and it's very exciting. And I can tell you from my own experience in melanoma, even in the last five years, there's been people with metastatic melanoma that used to be a death sentence that now are living disease-free years later with this, thanks to these treatments. So I don't, you know, I can't guarantee that would be for everyone, but there's still hope is what it's giving is is hope. And there's, there's a lot of room to harness that. We're in the early days of this. 
but things like vaccines and adjuvants and new immunotherapies to go in conjunction with that is a very, very exciting field for not just melanoma, but, but cancer overall. So cancer research in general is going to help us all in the future. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, Jason, you've given us quite the education on skin cancer, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. So several key points I'll remember is looking for symptoms you address like color, itchy or sore or crusty or waxy spots, and keeping the A, B, C, D, E in mind for those strange looking spots or moles, getting a full body check, skin check annually, protecting ourselves with hats, covered clothing, sunscreen of 30 plus, and remembering to reapply. Thank you for that reminder. Avoiding sun if we can between 10 and four. And of course, no sun lamps or tanning beds. So we've got that down. And Jason, thank you again for sharing your time. But before we invite Eric back to join us, my last question for you is, how do you keep your well and wealthy? Well, Obviously, as a dermatologist, I'm very vigilant about my sun protection with myself and my family. So that's one thing we do. But we try to eat healthy, eat our five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, and try to get a little bit of exercise every day, whether it's walking the dog or taking a jog or you know lifting weights in the gym. That's something that we try to do as a family. And we try to you know make it fun. So we cook dinner together, or we walk the dog together, or we exercise together, my wife and I. And those are the things that we try to do to uh, to keep that well and wealthy. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, Eric. Yes. <laughs> any dermatologic surprises for you today? Oh, I mean, a ton of ton of great new information that I never knew before. But I had to chuckle because something you touched on earlier with where we're working now. And we're, we were here before at Boys Town. Right. These young men, there's young men of all different skin colors and uh, all different backgrounds and ethnicities. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I'm black. I don't burn. We don't burn. We don't need. And my wife says the same thing every time. Skin cancer is not racist. It, it does not choose a race. It does not choose a color. It is, it's the possibility for anybody to get it because of your exposure. So put the sunscreen on <laughs> and she always, she's always handing out the 50. So it's, it's a, they're like, okay, fine. But yeah, it, I think there's a lot of myths out there. And so I, I, I love the fact that you guys address that today because it, it doesn't see color of skin. It just sees an opportunity and unfortunately people get it. So. That's right. So for anyone that wants to reach out, you can contact Dr. Jason Rizzo through the woodruffinstitute.com. And that information will be in the podcast notes, along with some other websites on skin cancer. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. Thanks, Eric and Barbara. It's been my pleasure. All right. This has been fantastic. Again, Jason, great information. Thank you so much, Barbara. You always bring great guests on. If people want to learn more, Barbara, about what you're doing and why you're doing this podcast, can you give them a little contact information as well? Sure. If they want to reach out to me, I'm B Archer, that's B-A-R-C-H-E-R, at Hightoweradvisors.com. H-I-G-H-T-O-W-E-R-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com reach out to us and we're happy to help or send any of our podcast links to you and on any particular issue that we've addressed. Thank yeah. you for joining us. 
Yeah, that's a huge library you've got. So I'm, I'm excited to share that information. Thank you both again. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.